Hello everyone, welcome to the Sons of Antiquity podcast. I'm your host Evan, and I'm joined in the studio by my co-host Dan. Hi everyone. The process of amending the United States Constitution is one of the most important and forward-thinking additions to our earliest governing documents. The founders understood that, over time, hairline cracks in the foundation of our nation's laws may grow larger and would require maintenance. Since the ratification of the Constitution in 1789, 27 amendments have been ratified, few of which have become law without some form of controversy. And when it comes to controversial amendments, the 14th is one of the first that comes to mind. Today, we will dissect this amendment, analyze the text, discuss the historical events which led to its existence, examine its role in various court cases, and ask, was it good legislation? Did this amendment do what it set out to do? And how has the federal power it grants been abused over the years? So let's all pretend to be legal experts and learn more. Before we get started, let's go through a quick rundown of the amendment process. Article 5 of the U.S. Constitution provides Congress and the states with a helpful means of modifying the Constitution, should the need arise. A two-thirds majority in the House and Senate, or a two-thirds majority of state legislatures assembled in a convention of states, may propose an amendment. The amendment must then be ratified by a three-fourths majority in the House and Senate, or by a three-fourths majority of states. So far in American history, only the congressional route has ever been used to propose amendments, though the 21st Amendment, which repealed the 18th and ended Prohibition, was actually ratified by state conventions for the first and so far only time. Many modern political commentators on the American right have long rallied for a constitutional convention to propose restrictions on the federal government, the method which Alexander Hamilton once described in Federalist No. 85 as a means to erect barriers against the encroachments of the national authority. All this talk of proposing and amending sounded like a fine plan to the founders, but just before it came time to sign the Constitution into law, three men, Edmund Randolph, George Mason, and Elbridge Gerry, refused to sign unless a Bill of Rights was added. So James Madison, who agreed with the men in their argument that a list of rights and limitations on government was necessary, drafted a series of amendments which, after a little editing, became the first ten amendments to the Constitution. Now that the amendment process is out of the way, we need to talk about the Supremacy Clause found in Article 6 of the Constitution, because this is yet another bit of controversial language which can provide some context for the development of the 14th Amendment. Consider the following from Article 6. The Constitution and the laws of the United States which shall be made in pursuance thereof, and all treaties made, or which shall be made under the authority of the United States, shall be the supreme law of the land. And the judges in every state shall be bound thereby, anything in the Constitution or laws of any state to the contrary notwithstanding. The issue at hand in the early republic was that judges were upholding certain state laws which would hinder the settling of war debts following the American Revolution, and this could jeopardize America's relationship with England by preventing treaty obligations from being fulfilled. To remedy this, Article 6 established a hierarchy of sorts, which bound judges in every state to the federal constitution primarily, and state law secondarily. Later interpretations would also grant Congress the authority to keep certain issues outside the realm of state law and would give federal statutes and congressional directives supremacy over state laws and state constitutions. Some court cases related to the Supremacy Clause include Marbury v. Madison, Martin v. Hunter's Lessee, and McCulloch v. Maryland. At this point, it seemed that federal power was slowly growing, though a victory for states' rights would come in 1833 with the case Barron v. Baltimore, which established that the U.S. Bill of Rights does not apply to state governments. This was the precedent until the 14th Amendment redefined what states were allowed to do and not do. As the decades went on, the abolitionist cause grew stronger and the ideological split between slave states and free states widened. The slavery apologists correctly pointed out that the Constitution did not grant any rights to slaves, or black people in general. In fact, it condoned slavery in several places. For example, the Three-Fifths Compromise. And according to the Tenth Amendment, the power is not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively, or to the people. So slave states protected the institution and ensured that the balance of power never swayed enough to allow the Constitution to be amended to outlaw slavery. Things came to a head with the election of Abraham Lincoln in 1860. Despite statements reassuring the slave states that he had no intention to abolish slavery, only to preserve the Union and prevent the expansion of slavery, seven southern states seceded. This provoked a four-year-long conflict 
which caused over 600,000 Americans to perish. We won't delve into the controversy of whether the Civil War was fought over the institution of slavery alone or something else, but we can say confidently that by the time the war ended, the Union considered it an anti-slavery conflict. Check out episode 29, Secession, for more details on that. After the Civil War ended, the question was raised, should the federal government step in to assure black people are treated fairly, or should they continue with the old model of states' rights? If slavery was outlawed and black men could vote, had the federal government done its job? Enter the Radical Republicans. They were a faction within the Republican Party who wanted an immediate, complete, and permanent eradication of slavery and full civil rights for freed men. They were opposed by the moderate Republicans, which included Lincoln, for pushing the South too hard and too fast. After the war, the South fully suppressed and Lincoln assassinated, the three Reconstruction Amendments were pushed by the Radicals into the Constitution. The 13th Amendment outlawed involuntary servitude, also known as slavery, with the exception of a punishment for a crime. Despite common belief, it was not ratified on June 19th or Juneteenth, but December 6th, 1865. Juneteenth was when Union General Gordon Granger entered Galveston, Texas, and proclaimed the war and slavery were over. But it wasn't over throughout the entire Union until December of that same year. The 14th Amendment, being the main topic of this episode, will be detailed in a minute, but it was ratified in 1868. The 15th Amendment prohibited the states from denying or abridging a citizen's right to vote on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. And note, at the time, it was only for men. 19th Amendment came later. It took until 1870 for it to be ratified. And not a single Democrat voted for it. Sad. So that we're all on the same page, here is the text of the 14th Amendment. Section 1. All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Now, sections 2 through 4 are less important to the topic of this episode and the impact of the 14th Amendment, but we will read them nonetheless for completeness. Section 2. Representatives shall be apportioned among the several states according to their respective numbers, counting the whole number of persons in each state, excluding Indians not taxed. But when the right to vote at any election for the choice of electors for president and vice president of the United States, representatives in Congress, the executive and judicial officers of a state, or the members of the legislature thereof, is denied to any of the male inhabitants of such state, being 21 years of age and citizens of the United States, or in any way abridged, except for participation in rebellion or other crime, the basis of representation therein shall be reduced in the proportion which the number of such male citizens shall bear to the whole number of male citizens 21 years of age in such state. And just a note, this is a direct refutation of the three-fifths compromise. You can you could hear the language in there, whole persons. They're being very clear. Hey, anybody in your state, male, 21 years of age or older, that is a person. They shall have this vote. They shall have this representation. Yep. Section 3. No person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or an officer of the United States, or as a member of any state legislature, or as an executive or judicial officer of any state, to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same, or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. But Congress may, by a vote of two-thirds of each house, remove such disability. This was obviously a blow against the Confederate politicians as well to make sure they couldn't be a part of the political process anymore. Yeah, going forward, since y'all were part of the rebellion and the insurrection. Yeah. That part wouldn't, wouldn't have flown well if Lincoln had been alive. He would have definitely opposed that part of it. To smooth it, it over. To smooth it over, reconcile a little bit more. This was more of a, a stab in the dark, I would say. I would agree. Section 4. The validity of the public debt of the United States, authorized by law, including debts incurred for payment of pensions and bounties for services in suppressing insurrection or rebellion, 
shall not be questioned, but neither the United States nor any state shall assume or pay any debt or obligation incurred in aid of insurrection or rebellion against the United States, or any claim for the loss or emancipation of any slave. But all such debts, obligations, and claims shall be held illegal and void. Again, we can look We can look at that pretty quickly and know, okay, they're talking about the Civil War, the, the rebellion insurrection that happened there. And also, they're making it very certain you will not be paid for the slaves that we emancipated, which Lincoln also wanted to pay the slave owners off. Yeah, another another olive branch there that after he was gone, they said, no, 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 no. You guys are, are our enemies and you're basically going to do what we say. You're lucky that we're giving you this, you know, letting it, you rejoin the Union. Well, it was impossible to leave the Union. Again, watch episode 29 secession. You won't regret it. And lastly, section five, the Congress shall have the power to enforce by appropriate legislation, the provisions of this article. I'm pretty sure that's the end of every amendment. Yes, yeah, pretty self-explanatory. We talked about it, but we actually can enforce it. Just in case you forgot, we are going to enforce this. Now let's go over some noteworthy Supreme Court cases, which dealt with the 14th amendment. And we will go in chronological order. The civil rights cases, 1883. Five cases which established that the 14th Amendment did not empower Congress to outlaw racial discrimination by private individuals. Basically, it established that only the federal and state governments were forbidden to practice racial discrimination. So an individual couldn't be controlled, you know, at the individual level. They couldn't regulate their behavior. The institutions like private businesses could have segregation or not allow, quote, colored people inside Yes. Their business, and that was perfectly legal. At the time, yes. yes. And obviously, since then, that has definitely changed. But well, at the time there... don't get ahead of yourself, Dan. Uh, we'll I'm, have some fun later with all that. We sure will, yeah. I, I want to save all my hot takes for, uh, for a later date, so continue, Evan. The infamous Plessy v. Ferguson in 1896. Racial segregation laws don't violate the 14th Amendment as long as they're, quote, separate but equal, unquote. Now, this had a lot of implications in that it, it justified a lot of segregation laws and difference in treatment because they would just claim it's separate but equal. But as we'll see later, that, that was argued against in the 50s and 60s that there's no such thing in a racist society. You can't have separate but equal and have it actually be that way. United States v. Wong Kim Ark, 1898. If you're born on U.S. soil, you are officially a U.S. citizen, unless your parents are official representatives of a foreign nation. So does, does this begin the era of the anchor baby, so to speak? At least the legal basis for it, yes. It established that if you are born on U.S. soil, you are a citizen. Whereas before, there was a lot of ambiguity. Because that's what happened in this case. This Chinese man was born to Chinese nationals in America. And he grew up in America, but then he went back on a trip to China and tried to come back. And they said, wait a minute, because they passed a law saying Chinese people aren't allowed to come into America. He so said, but he I was said, born here. He said, I'm a citizen. You can't just kick me out of my own country. And that's what started this whole case. There was a Lochner era, which lasted from 1897 to 1937, during which the court struck down most economic and contractual regulations as a violation of the liberty spoken of in the due process portion of the 14th Amendment. This obviously has since been overturned, but it was a libertarian dream for about 40 years. They, they struck down any kind of minimum wage laws or regulations of industries or the like. Awesome. Now, who was Lochner? Pretty sure Lochner was the chief justice of the Supreme Court at the time. Oh, he I lasted see. a long time. He was gotten rid of during the, the Roosevelt administration, I see. Or he just died off, I don't know. But he was an unwelcome sore in Roosevelt's side for a while, I'm pretty sure, because they struck down a lot of his stuff. Oh, okay, yeah, because they were so, as you said, libertarian, and obviously Roosevelt was uh, was not down with that. So he struck down a lot of Roosevelt's stuff that he was pushing. I'm pretty sure I remember that right. Then there was Gitlow v. New York from 1925. The states don't have a right to restrict freedom of speech and freedom of the press. New York had uh, convicted a socialist for publishing leftist trash, an exception is made when a person directly incites an illegal overthrow of the government. Just a fun fact on that case, Gitlow was, he was a socialist. He ended up being one of the founding members of the Communist Party of America, but then later on came out with an expose against the Communist Party of the U.S. and became an anti-communist for the rest of his life. Wow. Quite a trajectory. Pierce v. Society of Sisters, 1925. States cannot force all children to attend public school, as opposed to other forms of schooling. Oregon had outlawed private school, mostly as an attempt to keep kids from going to Catholic schools. And that's why the sisters, aka the nuns, fought back. And they won. 
Skinner v. Oklahoma, 1942. Compulsory sterilization of criminals is unconstitutional. Korematsu v. United States, 1944. Concentration camps for citizens with an ethnicity of an enemy nation during wartime with said nation is okay from a legal standpoint. Now, of course, in this case, it was Japanese people during the war with Japan, World War II. And they said, it's not like a Hitler concentration camp is just literally concentrating them in an area and completely stopping all communication with the outside world so they couldn't give away enemy secrets. That was the thinking. And it's not totally illogical. No, but also, I mean, this has been a very much criticized Supreme Court decision. Emerson v. Board of Education, 1947. States cannot have any variant of an established religion or taxpayer support to religious institutions because the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment applies to states now because of the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. So we have to apply the law equally to give everyone due process. And so the the states, they can't establish a religion here and then not as having a, a religion established in this state or this state. It can't be all different. Have to apply the law equally, so to speak. And just to, just to point out that I think going until the 1870s, there were still states with official state religions. They had religious liberty for the other religions. They would just put some taxpayer money toward that one denomination they happened to support. And that lasted until the, I'm pretty sure, court cases struck that down because of the 14th Amendment. But it goes way longer than people think. People think it ended with the U.S. Constitution is not true. Because the U.S. Constitution was not seen to apply to the states until the 14th Amendment, in most cases. Shelley v. Kramer, 1948. Racially restrictive housing contracts are unconstitutional. Now, this was starting to set the stage for private actions being subject to 14th Amendment restrictions. Before, it was only state and federal actions couldn't be discriminatory, but now it's starting to move into this gray area where it's a public action using the state support to enforce contracts. That's where they got them but it's still private entities working. But they said, no, you, you can't do that. Brown v. Board of Education, 1954. This overturned Plessy v. Ferguson. This ruling forced the nation to desegregate and outlawed white and colored public facility distinctions. So this is the beginning of the integration movement that we see in the following decades uh, after this. Schools being integrated. No more separate but equal. Right, that was a big ruling. They said, well, separate... But- but equal is a dream, and it's, it's not the reality in these segregated states. The white kids are getting preferential treatment and all that. So this was a big deal decision. Every, everybody knows it, pretty much. Yes, it's, uh, you don't learn a lot in public schools, but you will probably learn about that one. Map v. Ohio, 1961. And you'll see there are a lot of cases in the 60s, but that's just a side point. In Map v. Ohio, states cannot use evidence which was obtained by violating the Fourth Amendment. So the, I'm pretty sure the police just like broke into someone's house without a warrant and then found someone doing heroin or something. I forget. Yeah. Or even just found evidence. That was probably a pretty common thing. Oh, we need to find this evidence. Yeah, but it's, you know, in this guy's house. Oh, well, we'll just go in there. No warrant needed. And so that I can definitely side with. You know, I, I, I do not appreciate the police violating my rights in order to try to prove me guilty. Yeah. So this is just extending the scope of the 14th Amendment. It's just, As you can see, it just keeps applying to more and more amendments of the U.S. Constitution, applying it to the states, so the states can't violate these amendments. And we'll see it expand further, but I don't want to get too ahead of myself. Robinson v. California, 1962. States cannot prosecute addiction to drugs, only illegal use, and only if they catch you. That's right. So if you were just a drug addict, they can't just arrest you for being a drug addict. They can't just wait outside the rehab center and just arrest you when you walk in. (laughs) Gotcha. This is another big deal one. Griswold v. Connecticut, 1965. Married couples have the constitutional right to buy and use contraceptives without government restriction. This was the first SCOTUS case which used the right to privacy argument in its case. Now, you might ask, where is that in the Constitution? Yes, where is that? We're still searching. We'll get back to you. Yeah. Loving v. Virginia, and it's worth noting that Virginia is for lovers. 1967. States cannot... Outlaw interracial marriage. Froyum v. Rusk, 1967, and later on Vance v. Terrasas in 1980. A U.S. citizen cannot be deprived of his citizenship against his will. 
So if you go join Al-Qaeda, you cannot be deprived of your citizenship. But if you're Obama, you can kill them without a trial or a warrant. Yeah, the 14th Amendment doesn't protect you against a drone strike. Furman v. Georgia, 1972. This temporarily outlawed the death penalty across the nation because it was imposed more readily on black people in America. Death penalty at the time was ruled to be cruel and unusual punishment and arbitrarily applied. Has to have an objective basis for pursuing the death penalty. Eisenstadt v. Baird. 1972. Unmarried people also have a right to purchase and use contraception. So an extension of um, Griswold v. Connecticut. Roe v. Wade. 1973. You may have heard of this one. States cannot outlaw abortion. So this obviously was a huge, I mean, probably the biggest, maybe most famous one on the list, at least when it comes to recent politics. I mean, this has been part of the national discussion part of every political campaign since then. I mean, it hasn't stopped being controversial. It hasn't stopped being talk, talked about. Politicians are always being asked what their opinions are on it. And recently, it was in part rebuked by the Supreme Court. It actually wasn't as big of a deal back then as you think it was. When it, when it was released, it was kind of met with a blah, like, you know, most people actually didn't care because they didn't think about it much. And it was actually only, like, Catholics who stood up for it. And it was known as, like, the Catholic cause. And then eventually it became a broader movement, involved the laity and um, Protestants and various other people. But we'll, we'll talk more about abortion. Don't she worry. Goss v. Lopez, 1974. Public school students cannot be suspended without a hearing. They probably deserve it, but I guess they deserve a hearing because of the Fourth Amendment or something. Greg v. Georgia, 1976. Partially overturned Furman v. Georgia by allowing the death penalty when it was meted out objectively. Now, just some background. They, they were arbitrary on when they would try to pursue the death penalty. First degree murder, if a black man did it, they would usually pursue death penalty. But if a white man did first degree murder, they would just try for life. And so the Supreme Court came and said, look, you got to you got to have like a standard punishment for each crime. It can't just be like whatever you feel like. Yeah, I, I agree. Georgia came back with like a plan. They're like, okay, I mean, you do this crime, you're gonna, we're gonna pursue death penalty. They said, okay, we'll accept it. Regents of the University of California v. Bach, 1978. Affirmative action is okay, but racial quotas are unconstitutional. So you can't say um, 627 of our students have to be black. You can't say that. But you can favor minority races. That's that's the ruling. And this keeps this is kept being challenged ever since. And I think there's recent cases where a number of Asian parents have sued certain Ivy League schools or California schools, I forget, saying that they were discriminated against for being Asian. Yes. So this will probably keep coming up until eventually the Supreme Court is just going to come back and say affirmative action is not okay. I sure hope so. Uh, that seems to be the direction it's headed. Planned Parenthood v. Casey, 1992. Roe v. Wade was reaffirmed and strengthened uh, in this case. This is, I think, probably more in line with uh, uh, when the movement started to pick up and, and get broader. It was around this time because this was a huge case as well. So if you watch episode 25 of the Benedict Option, we actually quote directly from the Supreme Court case on the right of the individual to determine basically the everything about existence. Just watch that episode, you won't regret it. But we, we directly quote from that, it's ridiculous what they say the individual has the right to decide in his or her own life. United States v. Virginia, 1996. Publicly funded universities cannot be male only. So this, if I'm going to complain, besides abortion, if I'm going to complain about anything on this list, this is probably my top complaint. Your hot take. My Go hot take, because it. it sets such a bad precedent, you can't have sex segregated spaces anymore that somehow violates the 14th amendment it really ruined a lot of things and it's going to keep ruining a lot of ruining a lot of things this was a military academy that that uh was involved and now they had to admit women it kind of allowed a lot of the progressivism into the military culture that we're starting to really see nowadays this was the beginning of it i will also add that many other institutions that you wouldn't necessarily think of as as public or aren't public at all that are private institutions Great example, the Boy Scouts. Look what happened to the Boy Scouts. It was this type of culture. It was these types of decisions that changed people's minds and started putting on some public pressure into integrating, say, uh, you know, uh, gender integration of what were formerly all male spaces, which there is nothing wrong with. Anybody who says otherwise is a fool. 
there need to be sex segregated spaces and people, if they want to establish them, they should be perfectly capable of doing so and should be allowed to do that. And that should be celebrated. But that was the beginning of the end for a lot of the formerly all male institutions that used to be so great in this country. Uh, Anyway, Washington v. Glucksburg in 1997. Assisted suicide is not protected by the 14th Amendment. Well, hell, at least they did something right with the 14th on that one. Well, they did a lot of things right. But in recent times, it's been, well, not including the race stuff, it's been more bad than good. Lawrence v. Texas, 2003. State sodomy laws are unconstitutional. In other words, states cannot outlaw consensual homosexual acts. Sad. District of Columbia v. Heller, 2008, and McDonald v. City of Chicago, 2010. States cannot ban handguns even if they're not in a militia. Also, states cannot require rifles and shotguns to be unloaded and disassembled or bound by a trigger lock, as was the practice, when not in use in the home. The Second Amendment applies to self-defense as well. The 14th Amendment's Due Process Clause incorporates the Second Amendment to all state action, but the states have some leeway on regulating firearms. Obergefell v. Hodges, 2015. Same-sex marriages are legal nationwide because of both the Due Process Clause and the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. This was a shocking case. We're only in our late 20s, full disclosure. We grew up with this whole debate on gay marriage. I can remember a time when this this was a big topic, and then the Supreme Court just came in and decided it for the whole nation. It was actually pretty shocking. I mean, at the time, I supported gay marriage, but it was still like shocking. It seemed a big overreach to me. All of a sudden, this whole debate just went away. And the Republicans no longer talked about civil unions versus banning gay marriage and all that. It's it's crazy to think like less than a decade ago, we were still having this discussion and now nobody talks about civil unions or anything like that. Yeah. Uh, when you put it in that perspective, it is really strange. Uh, this was a big part of the 2008 election. This was a big part of the Obama uh, cycle. He wasn't even pro-gay marriage when he was elected the first time. He only adopted it after Biden pressured him to do it. Yeah, he he tried to retcon people. Oh, yeah, I was always about uh, gay marriage and and all that stuff. And, you know, I got to hand it to him. Got to give him credit. Rick Santorum tried to warn us. He really did. Yep, because he was our man on the inside. Because he is a closeted homosexual. No one can change my mind about that. Rick Santorum is a closeted homosexual. And he knew that this is where it was headed. He tried to warn us, but we didn't listen. And here we are. New York State Rifle and Pistol Association Incorporated v. Bruin, 2022. It's now easier to get a concealed carry permit, at least in New York. And if the case sets a precedent, maybe in other places too. According to the syllabus of the decision, which is quite lengthy, the whole decision is very long, but I encourage you to go read the pertinent parts of it. The result of the case determined that, quote, New York's proper cause requirement violates the 14th Amendment by preventing law-abiding citizens with ordinary self-defense needs from exercising their right to keep and bear arms in public, end quote. Much like the gay marriage decision, this was a surprise decision, almost came out of nowhere. It was right around the same time as the uh, Roe and Casey decision uh, earlier this year and it just inspired so many great memes and so much celebration and so much love for the more conservative uh justices that we got on the court they must be from virginia yes yes because we be loving them but not like that don't don't take it in a weird way yeah so i was very excited to see all that and i hope they they do more for us gun owners because it's uh it's about time that we had our day in the sun Finally, Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, 2022. Abortion is now back in the hands of the state and federal legislators. Unless Congress passes a law to guarantee a right to abortion or outlaws abortion nationwide, states can decide to ban abortion, make it legal at every stage of pregnancy, or somewhere in between. Reverting back to the pre-Roe era, just completely refuting its former self. It's just changing its mind back and forth which was a big criticism of the Supreme Court saying, "Oh, you, you made all these decisions and you're just going to you're just going to go against what you said." A lot of people lost trust in the institution itself. They should have already lost trust in it from all the activist legislation it's pushing, but you know, this was I think a welcome change. But we will get to that, don't worry. So, there you have it, guys. As you can see, the 14th Amendment has been used to justify both opposing arguments on numerous issues. The original intent of the 14th Amendment was to grant citizenship rights to American blacks, 
but it has been used to justify segregation, desegregation, gay rights, abortion rights, the election of George W. Bush, rights to privacy, even though the word privacy doesn't appear anywhere in the text of the amendment itself, or in the whole Constitution, and other civil rights like equal opportunity employment, Title IX, etc. Now let's go over, I guess, a brief overview of the aftermath of the 14th Amendment's ratification. Originally, the Civil Rights Act of 1875 was intended to outlaw discrimination in juries, schools, public places, etc. But in order to pass, lawmakers had to make concessions to the growing separate but equal crowd who favored segregation. The law was struck down by the Supreme Court in 1883, the argument being that the Constitution could not restrict the activities of private businesses, i.e. they were free to discriminate. Regardless, the election of Rutherford B. Hayes in 1876 was bought at a price. The Compromise of 1877 gave Hayes the presidency in return for an end to Reconstruction and the withdrawal of federal troops which enforced the radical Republican agenda in the South. The issue of racial justice didn't pop up majorly onto the national scene much until the post-World War II era. Now what about the Commerce Clause loophole in the Civil Rights era? The Commerce Clause, found in Article 1, Section 8, has been interpreted in such a way that state powers have been limited. Similarly, the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment has been interpreted to force states to comply with certain national policies, such as nationwide civil rights and protections for women, minorities, LMNOP, etc. The expansion of the federal government's powers over the states and individuals. As we mentioned, the 14th Amendment's equal protection language has allowed the federal government to regulate the states in ways they were previously barred from, for better or worse. For example, freedom of religion in the form of teaching Christianity in schools was previously a state and local issue. But over time, the 14th Amendment has been applied to these cases and has led to the forced secularization of schools. And as a result of the 14th Amendment, many precedents were completely reversed. Interpretations of the 14th Amendment have led to a reversal of many precedents in government, uh, such as the aforementioned religion and school issue. Another issue which you might not have thought of is this. The 14th Amendment has, because of its controversial nature, given more power to the Supreme Court. Since so many cases involving this amendment have come before the court, they've wielded more and more power over the states and localities with their decisions. This is part of the reason why Supreme Court picks are so divisive, because there is a lot at stake. Prior to all the cases related to the 14th, one or two key decisions by the court wouldn't have such a far-reaching impact. Now we can begin to speculate on the future implications of the 14th Amendment. Given the diversity of court decisions which have been justified by the 14th Amendment, it is almost certain that there will be a colorful future for it as well. A huge issue at stake is abortion. Before 1973, abortion was purely a state issue, and multiple states had already legalized it to some extent. As you remember, in 1973, Roe v. Wade forced all states to allow abortion, at least up to a certain point of pregnancy. In 1992, Planned Parenthood v. Casey strengthened the rights guaranteed in Roe. In the past decade, states have more boldly attempted to get around Roe and further restrict abortion access. Many people thought the issue was settled from a legal standpoint, until a conservative Supreme Court changed course in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization in 2022. Much to the chagrin of Democrats and the media, Dobbs reverted to the pre-Roe policy of leaving abortion entirely up to the states. For now at least, a state can outlaw abortion in all cases or legalize it in all cases. While this new precedent leaves open the possibility of Congress outlawing or legalizing it nationwide, as the, quote, Women's Health Protection Act of 2022 tried to do, but failed, there is a slight possibility of new legal precedent in the future. If the court became very conservative, they could potentially use the Equal Protection and Due Process Clauses to outlaw abortion nationwide, without the need for a law. This may be an unlikely dream, but if they establish that fetuses are humans with a right to life, the Equal Protection Clause would apply by extending the right to not be killed to unborn children as well. And according to Section 1 of the 14th Amendment, quote, Nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, unquote. So if you can't just allow someone to be killed or kill someone without due process, meaning there has to be a legal reason to do so, a.k.a. they commit a crime. But what crime can a fetus commit? It can't. Alternatively, if the Supreme Court becomes liberal again, we could return to Roe 2.0. But for now, it's a state issue. And if you ask me, that's where it belongs. We don't outlaw murder at the national level. It's something that should, in a virtuous society, be left up to the states. 
And I say it should be left up to the states, but I agree with that. That is, until there's enough support to amend the Constitution to ban it entirely. Anyways, another major avenue that the 14th Amendment may venture into is anti-discrimination laws. You've probably heard Gary Johnson saying to bake that cake. But to elaborate, he was rejecting the right of business owners to refuse service on religious grounds. In the 2010s, a bakery in Colorado refused to create a wedding cake for a gay couple due to the owner's religious objections to sodomy. In Masterpiece Cake Shop v. Colorado Civil Rights Commission in 2018, the Supreme Court overturned the lower court's decisions and said that anti-discrimination courts must employ, quote, religious neutrality to determine if religious objections to anti-discrimination laws are valid. Although this has thus far been a First Amendment issue, it could potentially become a 14th Amendment issue if a liberal judge deems it such. And that's the problem with the 14th Amendment is deciding which which of the U.S. Constitution amendments apply and in which way to the states. And also just a little more background, two separate courts ruled that this man was or should be fined and forced to bake the cake. And the Supreme Court stepped in, 7-2 to two decision by the way, and said actually no, you can't force him to do that, to go against his religious beliefs. And that's why the lower courts are, are just as important, if not more important, because you don't think about them, but getting good judges down there is so critical. And even, you know, even with that being said, there is just a lot of corruption and a lot of activism at the lower levels. And got to drain the swamp, baby. Well, they were enforcing the law that was passed by the Colorado Congress, but the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the law was, it needed to be enforced in a certain way. I guess you could look at it from that perspective too and say, ooh, was this executive, was this federal overreach? Should we be allowing states to make laws like that? Should we not? I don't know. Another hot button issue that could dive into 14th Amendment territory is transgenderism. Not only will it inevitably become an anti-discrimination issue, but it is likely that trans activists will attempt to force their ideology into sports and gender-affirming care, quote-unquote, while also quashing all criticism under anti-discrimination laws. Where the, t- the courts will take this issue is a mystery, but we will find out soon enough if conservative politicians start trying to ban hormone treatment and gender surgeries, especially for minors, as a few are claiming they want to do, and more power to them. I agree, and a quick note on that I just got to mention here. Recently, on Monday, February 6th, 2023, militant trans activists, as they were called, stormed and occupied the Oklahoma State Capitol to protest SB 129 and other bills which would prohibit people younger than voting age, or even age 26 in the case of one bill, from being given hormone treatments, gender reassignment surgeries, and other sterilizing and life-altering procedures uh, and drugs. But don't worry, it definitely wasn't an insurrection. No, definitely not that. Anyway, it's obvious that these activists will try to pressure activist judges into ignoring the Constitution in favor of some loose 14th Amendment argument. I have a right to mutilate my child's genitals and your child's too because... My equal protection. For a while, the American judicial system has accepted that the U.S. Constitution applies to all levels of governments, largely due to the 14th Amendment. But when it came to gun rights... Until recently, the courts have given a lot of leeway to local and state governments to limit firearm purchases and harass gun owners. This all changed with District of Columbia v. Heller in 2008, McDonald v. City of Chicago in 2010, and New York State Rifle and Pistol Association, Inc. v. Bruin in 2022. All these cases rebuked gun control efforts, and one can only ask, how much further will the court go? In Dan's dream, the Supreme Court would legalize concealed carry in most firearms nationwide. In the words of Tom Hardy's character in the movie Inception, right before he fires the Milcor 40mm grenade launcher, you mustn't be afraid to dream a little bigger, darling. It's doubtful that the court will ever deregulate firearms to the degree that I dream of, which would be the full unlicensed and unregistered legalization of all suppressors, short-barreled rifles and shotguns, machine guns, a nationwide end to concealed carry permits with implementation of constitutional carry, or as I call it, Ron Swanson, I do what I want, carry, and an end to all bans on high-capacity magazines. Nevertheless, I am definitely happy about the recent rulings on firearms, and I hope that they manage to strike down the completely unconstitutional attempts by the truly evil, tyrannical, murderous ATF to make pistol brace users felons by April or May of this year. Get them. So how would America be different without the 14th Amendment? We hope you can see by now that the answer is a lot. 
But here's a quick rundown of what America would be like if the abolition of slavery and enfranchisement of black men was all that the radical Republicans accomplished. Let's start with the obvious. Racial segregation and Jim Crow would still be illegal possibilities. Even having the 14th Amendment didn't stop it from happening for almost 100 years. States' rights would be way stronger, for better or worse. We wouldn't necessarily have the current rule about being a citizen just because you're born on U.S. soil. States would have more leeway in restricting First Amendment rights and having tax-funded religions, as a few of them did well after the Civil War. States would have more leeway in restricting gun ownership if they so chose. Rights and trial would be unsecured at the federal level for state courts. Contraception could be banned at the state level, although we must say that these laws would probably be overturned by now due to cultural shifts. Abortion would be banned in many states. Let us not forget that 60 million unborn children have been legally murdered since 1973. So that number, the number of people who died would be much lower if this was a state issue. Gay marriage would still be a state issue, and it is likely that there would still be a few holdouts banning it. Sodomy could be criminalized at the state level, although again, I, I don't think that would be enforced at this point. I think a few would still have it on the books, but it would at most just be a, a small fine. <laughs> That's funny. Oh, we caught you having butt sex. Pay us $5,000. Uh, anyway, sex segregated spaces would be much more common without the fear of legal consequences hanging over our heads. There would have been no forced desegregation as happened in the 60s and 70s. So there you have it. Now, what do you think about this amendment? Dan, you start. All right, I will. In theory, the 14th Amendment should serve as a shield for citizens against a government which applies the law unequally and creates a dual justice system. I like that it only grants voting rights to males above the age of 21. I like that it can be used in conjunction with the Second Amendment to protect my gun rights. However, I don't like that the due process of law language is so vague. Does this mean that I can't be deprived of my life, liberty, or property unless Congress goes through the proper procedures to pass a law to justify the violation of my rights? Or does that mean I have to be put through an expensive public trial and found guilty of violating an unjust law before they can take my life, freedoms, and possessions? The language doesn't provide me or anyone else with enough protection on issues that matter. Historically, it has failed to protect citizens from actual tyranny. But if you want to kill your kid or force someone to bake a cake or put groups of people with incompatible cultures together against their will and at taxpayers' expense or let millions of people have anchor babies, sure, we can do that for you. And if you oppose any of this in any way, you're an enemy of the state. The 14th Amendment and its consequences have been a disaster for the American people. And some might say a disaster for the white males. The last thing I'll say is that you should only be a citizen if both your parents are citizens. That's my hot take, and you can fight me on it. There has to be an exception if you become a citizen, if you go through the process. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah. If you want to come to this country, you go through, get your visa, and then you're like, hey, I want to become a yeah. citizen, fine. I think it was just clumsy language that made them say, oh, or if you're born on U.S. soil. It was probably an attempt just so that they wouldn't try to take citizenship away from all the black people. Of course. Yeah, that's what, they should have been more precise instead of saying, oh, unless you, if you're born to citizens or you are, or you're born on U.S. soil, they should have said something different. Yeah, because here's the thing. You could have said if you're born to two citizens, and if you made everybody citizen, right? They would try to argue that the former slaves weren't, weren't citizens. Yeah, but if you had just freed them and made them citizens, then the, and, and all of their kids would be citizens as well. Yeah, they could have just put a little blurb about all former slaves, all black people in this country are citizens now. Yeah. And then also, if you're a citizen, these are your rights. Yes, they could never have foreseen a future with mass immigration like like it is today. It doesn't matter if it's one person or a million people. It's just dumb. Like well, you're I you're agree. just born there, and your parents like just happen to have you there, and you're a citizen. Like that's not how it works in other places. No, it should be. It's not something that should just be granted randomly to foreigners that have nothing to do. I mean, say what you will about granting citizenship and you know, earning it and all that, but just being born here to non-Americans, and I don't like it either. And overall, I can't top your analysis, Dan, so good job. Round of applause. Thank you, thank you. I agree that the 14th Amendment was great on paper, but hasn't worked out so well in practice. If it had been more precise on race and skin color being protected, we would have been safe from many of the evils which plague us today, and it did swing us too far away from states' rights. The federal government uh, was indeed empowered greatly by the 14th Amendment, and if it had just done so to protect racial minorities, I'm perfectly fine with it. 
I'm fine with desegregation and the abolition of Jim Crow laws. I think the federal government should step in to protect black people's basic rights, especially when they're being taken away or attempted to take away. I just get salty when such an amendment is used by activist judges to say that every American has the right to fornicate with the same sex or contract a union to such a purpose or kill their child or break up male-only organizations or whatever else they come up with. But I will have to mildly disagree with Dan on the gun control issue. I say you can't have your cake and eat it too. Either the states have power to do what they want, or they don't. I think states ought to have more leeway to outlaw certain types of firearms and make it harder for people to get them. Let the consequences of such laws come as they may, and as is the case for taxes and a bunch of other, you know, restrictions on what what we might call liberties. It would be a good experiment to see who had a better outcome. But we don't live in that kind of country anymore, do we? Everything has to happen at the national level now, and for the sake of subsidiarity and limited government, that's a real pity. So what did we learn today? The 14th Amendment was ratified along with the 13th and 15th at a time when the nation was dealing with issues which needed serious and immediate attention. While great in theory, the 14th Amendment has been used to justify a significant amount of government overreach. What may have sounded great in the post-war years has not aged as well as some thought. Despite its flaws and the flaws in other amendments, at least we have a process for changing the Constitution and the amendments when there is a will to do so. Now it's time for the lingering questions. Will the 14th Amendment ever be amended like Prohibition was? If so, how? Or, in other words, yo dog, I heard you needed an amendment to amend your amendment, so I passed an amendment amendment to amend your amendment. Evan, what do you think? My head's spinning after that. (laughs) But do you think that people will ever try to fix the loose language in the 14th Amendment? No, I think there's too many people invested in the loose language for them to change it. Especially to amend, we don't have nearly, we don't even have a majority, so getting a supermajority like we need, it's not going to happen. It should happen, but it won't. It should have happened. But it didn't. Lots of things should have happened. You're right. And they haven't. And uh, as a little bit of trivia for those listening, the last amendment that we passed in this country was the 27th. I believe it was 1992. And if I remember correctly, that amendment had really nothing to do with anything. It just had to do with uh, uh, congressional payments like of the of the Congress people and, and when they get paid or something or what what budget it comes out of. Well, they can't they can't approve a raise for their current term. It has to be in the next term. Exactly. There you go. That amendment, I believe, has the longest time between its proposal and its ratification, which was 202 years. Fascinating. But what's more fascinating is that it's been 31 years since we have had an amendment in this country. We don't have that kind of national will. No. Not will nor unity enough to propose anything. It's hard to get a majority. What other amendments have been abused to a similar degree, Dan? Now, that depends don't, on how don't you... Don't say 19. No, I was thinking about that earlier, but no, I wasn't going to say that. That was just... Yeah, no. It's not that they abuse it. It's just it was abusive and unnecessary. But it depends on what you mean by abuse. Do they abuse it by the actual language that is present, or do they abuse it by misinterpreting it because that can be a lot of the amendments like especially the first and second have been kind of twisted and then cherry-picked in order to apply certain rules you know oh you can't own a gun unless you're in a militia oh that's not actually speech that's hate speech that doesn't count as free speech etc so many amendments have been twisted to get some sort of outcome but as far as just existing as just open ended and loose wording to abuse, mm, I would say you're more likely to find something like that in the body of the Constitution. As we mentioned earlier, supremacy clause, those sorts of things. Commerce clause. Commerce clause, yes. Probably the biggest loophole. They didn't pass the Civil Rights Act of 1964 or whatever because of the 14th Amendment. They did it because of the Commerce Clause. Because the 14th Amendment they established did not protect, it did not just give the court the right to impose uh, civil rights like they wanted it on private individuals. But by the commerce clause, interstate commerce clause, they were able to justify it by saying these businesses conducted, you know, they they got like an ingredient, like they got their salt from the, the state next door. And Congress has the ability to regulate interstate commerce 
And that's how they got around the civil rights. They got around to the Civil Rights Act. These people are so bogus, man. These bastards. They're so sneaky, you know, just always just finding little tiny teeny loopholes and nobody and nobody can say Jack because, well, that's the government. How are you going to fight City Hall? You know, so, yeah, that'd be my answer. Body of the Constitution more so than the actual amendments. Anything you have to say on that? Well, you already said the, the Third Amendment. Ah, quartering troops. Yep, it's it has been controversial from day one. <laughs> yeah, I had a few troops in my house last night. I had to, yeah. had to hit them with a broom. To, get out of here! You're not welcome here. This town ain't big enough for the two of us. Get. get. <laughs> yeah, I told them to get. <laughs> you know, we should do an episode, or maybe something's kind of just quick little tidbit on that. You know, like the least controversial laws. Least controversial amendments, things that like everybody universally agrees on. Like, yeah, that's cool. I'm cool with that. That's never caused a problem. I don't There's know. There's literally not one Supreme Court case that's dealt with the Third Amendment. Yeah. Wow. That one should get an award, some kind of medal. Yeah. Never been controversial. Hmm. That's cool. And lastly, will the Convention of States ever happen in our lifetime or is it just a pipe dream? I can't imagine any amendment getting through in our lifetime. No, not through the traditional method of. Through Congress or through the states. I don't see any ability to get three quarters of Congress to agree on something. I don't think it's going to happen. Or even three quarters of states. And which is insane because the issues that people are trying to push the states to have the convention over, which is federal overreach, they want them to regulate the federal government. That is in the state's best interest. You'd think you'd be able to get three quarters of them to say, hey, F you to the federal government and put a leash on Congress. And put a leash on the presidency as well. I don't know. There was talk in the 90s of doing an amendment to outlaw or to to secure marriage against so-called gay marriage. But they ended up just passing the Defense of Marriage Act. And that's what Bill Clinton came back because he signed that into law. And he came back and said, oh, I only did that so they wouldn't make it an amendment. Liar. Yeah, of course. That's such a lie. And I'll leave you with this last tidbit talking about uh, proposing amendments. Uh, hundreds of thousands, well, not hundreds of thousands, about a hundred thousand different amendments have been just put out there, proposed, but they've never even gotten the two thirds that have allowed it to go to, you know, actual consideration. So tons and tons and tons of, of ideas have been floated about over the years, but as it turns out, only a mere 27 of them have managed to become part of our laws. It's incredible. The great filter, some might say. That's all for today's show. Make sure to like, subscribe, and leave your comments. Join us again next time for even more Ancient Wisdom.